The scripture this morning is from the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verse 17, through chapter 4, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For, as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. This is God's word. Mm -hmm. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church. If you're joining us for the first time, um, we have been going through a series on Philippians, and this is where it finds us right now. We're in chapter uh, three, towards the finishing up chapter three today. Um, needless to say, this is a pretty unprecedented time in the, the life of our church, uh, pretty unprecedented time in, in the life of our world. And, um, and uh, it, it puts us in a challenging spot as preachers. I know everybody's probably feeling this, but for me, um, I think that when we preach, we're trying to faithfully preach the passage that's in front of us. Uh, we're trying to faithfully preach the, um, uh, the, to the culture that's in front of us, to the moment that's in front of us, and we're trying to faithfully preach to the people that are in front of us, and I'm missing one of those significantly this morning. Um, so I want to faithfully preach this text this morning, uh, and I, honestly, I'm not deviating a whole lot from where I thought this thing was going to go about a week ago, um, and I want to faithfully preach to the moment in front of us. I don't want to pretend that this isn't weird or that this isn't uh, awkward and potentially anxiety-producing for, for all of us, um, and what's great about this passage is you might have already caught it. There's some significant places where we can connect the dots to, to what we're dealing with right now, and I'll get to that later. Um, but even though uh, this passage is in front of us and this moment is in front of us, you're not in front of us. I'm in front of you. You're not in front of us. And so uh, I hope that watching a sermon online feels somewhat normal to you because we do that all the time, um, especially when we're bored with the Stonebridge pastors. We'll go find somebody else and watch them instead, right? But uh, it's definitely unprecedented for me to... Um, uh, to be standing in front of an empty church. I mean, for those of you guys who aren't in the building, there's like 15 people in here right now. Thanks, band. Thanks, Tim, Dave. There's some people representing today, but it's a small crew. And so to make this feel more normal, I'm going to assign some specific roles that the congregation would normally play to the people who are in this room, okay? So I'll see Clark and Jeff. You guys are going to be the ones who laugh at my jokes, okay? And they, there may be some help needed there, so Ingrid, if you could help them out. Um, I was wondering, Leanne, if you could be the one who gives, just gives an affirming nod from time to time. Just, hmm, because it's like, you're tracking with me. That's, that's what I need, okay? Um, let's see. Uh, Alan, if you'd be the guy who just randomly holds up their cell phone every now and then and takes pictures of my slides. And it doesn't have to be the profound slides. It's usually just the funny memes. You can take pictures of those, okay? Um, 
Let's see, Tim, can you be the guy that comes up afterwards and tells me what I should have done differently with the sermon? If you could be that guy, that'd be great. And then um, Dave, you're in the back, so I'm going to put you there. And you're going to be the guy who, if the sermon gets boring, I want you to just really obviously pull out your, your bulletin and just start leafing through it, pri- trying to demonstrate very clearly that the bulletin is more interesting than I am. If you would do that, that'd be great. The rest of you guys can either tune in or tune out, and I hope the rest of you will just... Just play your part from your sofa, whatever you're doing would be helpful. Um, So let's pray, and I do want to ask us to do something differently that we don't normally do. Um, I'm going to ask you to pray out loud, because usually when we have a time of congregational prayer, it's somebody up front praying, but I want to ask you right where you are, as as I open us up in prayer before this, um, I'm going to give two spots, we're just going to give 30 seconds or so of silence, but would would you, where you are, just if you're sitting with your family, would would somebody just um, step up and, and, and pray for the things that I'm going to suggest? Uh, if you're gathered with a group of friends, you could do it that way as well, but just encourage you to, to pray out loud. And how cool that when we do that, that all of our prayers, this is a place where all of our prayers throughout this city are, are united, and even though we feel so disconnected in so many ways from what we would normally experience on a Sunday, our prayers connect us. So let's pray. Father, this building that I'm in is just a building, and the rooms that These people are watching this in our just rooms. But you made heaven and earth and you stand above it all. And I pray that rather than us feeling the smallness of worship on a screen, we would feel the bigness of our God who holds our congregation and this world together during this time. Every atom of this universe together at this time. Father, we thank you for all the ways that you provide for us. We've just sung that you're a good, good father. Wherever you are, will you take a moment to thank the Lord for two or three things that he's doing in your lives uh, or in the lives of people around you? Take a moment to pray. Lord, we pray that you would meet the needs of every member of this congregation, kids home from school, um, parents trying to balance work and home, employees disrupted by uh, the ripple effects of this moment on their corner of the workforce, um, those whose age or health puts them at a higher risk of social contact, and all of us, Lord, who are just trying to learn how to adapt right now. Will you, where you are, take a moment to ask the Lord for that daily bread that you're trying to figure out for the days ahead? And Father, would you, we pray that you would calibrate our hearts to think rightly about the crisis that's before us, Lord. Do not allow us to be either insensitively callous or irrationally anxious. And would you use the realities of this passage to to get our hearts in the right place this morning, Lord? That will only happen if these are not my words, but your words and not my thoughts, but your thoughts. So we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Uh, today is known as the Ides of March, so happy Ides of March. I'm not, supposed, I'm not sure you're even supposed to say that. I think you're supposed to say, beware the Ides of March. And the reason you're supposed to say that is because uh, on March 15th, 44 BC, there was a group of about 60 senators who assassinated Julius Caesar. And at the beginning of the series, I mentioned to you guys that uh, when, when the, uh, the, the conspirators, the last of them, Cassius and Brutus, finally made their final stand against Octavius and Mark Antony uh, a couple of years later, it happened uh, in a series of two battles right outside of Philippi. Um, and uh, so when, when Rome won the victory there, it was significant uh, that they made Philippi, as part of the celebrations, to honor it, they made Philippi a Roman colony. And in fact, there were a lot of uh, the soldiers that fought in that battle, also in other battles, that decided that Philippi was a really nice place to retire. And so you had this great veteran community. I mentioned this, I think, in week one of the, the series. But, uh, so you can imagine that Philippi is a place of, because of all of that, is a place of great patriotism because you've got this veteran community and all the rest. And, and so that's why it's so shocking in verse 20 that Paul would say, but our citizenship is in heaven. Paul's saying to a city that is ridiculously patriotic about their citizenship, proud of their, their status as citizens of Rome, he's, Paul's saying, this isn't who you are. You're actually citizens of another kingdom, a more important kingdom. Um, if you've lived a significant amount of your life in another country, uh, especially if you grew up in another country, then you maybe know a little bit of what it feels like to be from here but not from here. Uh, there's actually a phenomenon or a, there's a title that we give to, to kids who grew up overseas as part of another culture, and so they're called Third Culture Kids, TCKs. Um, Matt Harris and Ruth Ann Birch and I actually used to uh, do a ministry to Third Culture Kids, TCKs, with Mission to the World. Uh, they would gather their missionaries up yearly in a certain region for an area retreat, and we and some others would go there to do uh, a program for the students that, that were there. Um, I'll put a, a picture up here of... One of those. Here's where it gets fun, guys. There's a picture. There you go. Um, so uh, they pull these, these folks together. Um, Ruth Ann could speak from experience because she actually was a third culture kid from MTW in Australia. Matt and I were kind of more along for the ride. Uh, but, but we learned a lot along the way. This picture, uh, we're in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia here. And um, uh, we're with four middle school kids. This was our, our small group of middle school guys. These are missionary kids. And the reason I use this picture, because I know that that pool could have been from anywhere. Uh, you probably don't believe that we really went to KL. But uh, the reason I use that picture is because that kid that's holding up the ball on the bottom, his name is Micah Iverson, and tomorrow night he will be singing on The Voice. Uh, we want this guy in our band, Dave. He's really, he's really good. So, so watch for that tomorrow. You can Google Micah Iverson, but don't do it now. I know you're tempted to do it now. Do not Google anything during this sermon, okay? Um, he is a good bit older now. Uh, he looks like this when you see him tomorrow. Um, as you can see from the photo, Matt and I have not aged at all, but Micah has. So, um, I am not a missionary kid, so this has been a bit of a learning curve for me. Uh, for instance, I learned that when you ask an MK, where are you from, that's actually a really difficult, loaded kind of question um, because they have a sort of identity in multiple cultures, but their identity, their true identity, is sort of transcends all of them, right? So, so when they're on the field, there's this sense in which they're still foreigners because they're seen as Americans, but when they come home to the States, uh, they're still seen kind of as foreigners or they don't feel like they quite fit because it's not their heart culture. And so when you ask a missionary kid, where are you from, um, you might get a complex answer. Uh, here's how one MK named Erica uh, put it. 
She said, like most other TCKs, when someone asks me that question, my internal computer starts the search mode. What does this person mean by from? Is he asking my nationality? Or maybe it's where were you born? Does he mean where are you living now? Or where did you come from today? Or does he mean where do your parents live now? Or where did you grow up? Actually, does he even understand what a complicated question he just asked me? Or does he care? Is he simply asking a polite, let's make conversation about something while we stand here with our shrimp on our plates question? Or is he really interested? Now, I want you to get a hold of that feeling for a moment because a TCK, I think, gets it at some unspoken basic gut level what we all need to get this morning from this passage. And that's that the reason that sometimes we feel like everywhere we go we don't quite belong is because everywhere we go we don't quite belong. We don't belong, not fully. All of us should have a sense of that. Where is your citizenship? If you're, if you're a Christian, you are rooted in Christ, then he is seeing you through to your true home, the place that you were made for. That means that the thing that most truly defines you this morning is not that you're American or, or, or Indian or Korean or Mexican. And although we may have a strong sense of patriotism for our passport country, Paul says you carry a much more defining passport. So how do you navigate your moments here with your identity rooted in your true citizenship. I'm going to suggest two things, and this is what we'll look at this morning. First, you choose the right tour guide, and second, you remember where you're going. That is how we keep our identity rooted in our true citizenship, never more important than it was today, than it is today. Choose the right tour guide, remember where you're going. So first, choose the right tour guide. Verse 17 says, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Now ponder that for just a moment. I know we give Paul a freebie here because he's an apostle, but isn't it a bit bold to say, hey, if you want to know how to live right, uh, imitate me. You would not give me a free pass if I said that, right? You want to know how to live righteously? Follow the Burrells around for a day. It's really easy. Just follow us, do what we do, say what we say, live what we live, watch what we watch, and you will live a righteous life. It wouldn't be weird, though, if you were taking piano lessons from Dave. And Dave were to say, okay, watch what I do. Okay, now you do it. I want you to imitate me right now. I've learned how to play piano. I've committed my life to playing piano, and now I'm trying to teach you what I've learned. Right? It's not weird at all for that. And that's what Paul's saying. In fact, that's what Paul's been saying for two chapters. If you've been paying attention, that's what he's been doing for most of chapter two and three. It's been all about following the right examples. If you go back to the beginning of chapter two, you'll remember that uh, he was saying that we all need to follow the humble attitude of, of Jesus. And then he goes on to describe people who, who did. I think Chris was the one that preached, talked to us about Timothy. And you remember Timothy, um, it say, it's saying, Paul saying, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine concern in your well-being. Like, he says, imitate him. And then he talks about Epaphroditus. I know we didn't talk about him as much, but um, Epaphroditus, when I was a teenager, he was like a, a hero of mine. And I think it was because, well, if you'd asked, hey, who's your, who's your hero Bible character? I would have said Epaphroditus. And I think I was just trying to come up with a cool answer because really he's hardly mentioned in the Bible. But um, when he is mentioned, it says this. It says, um, he was distressed because you heard he was ill which as a teenager, that absolutely blew me away to think that I would, somebody could be distressed thinking about what other people think of him being sick. I would be distressed because I'm ill. 
I, I wasn't thinking about my mom. I just wanted more chicken noodle soup, right? I wasn't thinking about the, how this was affecting my parents or other people, right? But here's, here's um, Epaphroditus concerned because of what other people have heard about him, and yes, he almost died. And Paul says, honor men like this guy. And then he goes on, Paul says, to talk about himself. And he says, hey, uh, you know, I, I had my confidence in the wrong things. I shifted from a, a self-righteousness to a Christ-righteousness. And I, when I did that, uh, now, now I'm running after Jesus. Tim talked about that last week. And so now he says, all of these things that we've learned and that we've put into practice, and these guys, Timothy and Epaphroditus and me, he says, those are all meant to be multiplied in you. He's not patting himself on the back. He's saying, these are qualities that we want to be duplicated. They're meant to be duplicated. I, I want you to get this too. I want you to learn the language of another country. And so listen, and let me try and teach you, because I'm supposed to pass this on to you. If you're going to live out your true citizenship, you need the right tour guide. You need someone who's, who's walking in the kingdom that will show you what it looks like to walk in the kingdom. Folks, do you want to not fear right now? then don't follow people who are living in fear. Don't listen to people who are living in fear. Do you want to have the right Christ-focused perspective of peace right now? Well, then listen to and follow the people that you see have the right Christ-focused perspective of peace. Um, in, in the last month, I have heard of four different situations, independent situations, where a younger couple tracked down an older couple in our church and said, your marriage, obviously, we see you doing something right, and we think that we could learn from you. Can we get coffee? Can we hang out with you? Younger couples seeking older couples saying, we think we can learn more about marriage from hanging out with you. If where you're wanting to go is a, is a clear-headed, faith-informed perspective on life and marriage and work and coronavirus and all the rest, then there are good tour guides and there are bad tour guides, and you need to pick the right ones. Paul says that in, in verse 18, he says, yeah, there are some bad tour guides. He says this, says, uh, for as I have often told you before and now tell you again with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Paul's talking here about people who are they're just living for the moment. They're just living for what's in, in front of them. And we're pretty sure that he's, this is scary, we're pretty sure he's not talking about people who are outside the church. He's talking about people who actually claim the name of Christ, but they're just living for their own appetites. Paul even says, it's powerful, he says, their God is their stomach. The stomach represents the appetites. So this is a group of people for whom the greatest human pursuit is just the fulfillment of the appetites, the fulfillment of physical desires. And he says, don't follow them. Those are not the people that you want to imitate. And yet, if we're honest, don't we find ourselves imitating those people a lot? Those goals a lot? We're preoccupied, if the um, checkout lines are, are any indication, we're preoccupied with the lives of celebrities or with the, their hairstyles or their clothes to make sure that we know what's cool and what's not. We're preoccupied with finding the next best-kept secret restaurant. We're preoccupied with the next movie release or with good food or good coffee or good beer or good wine, and maybe those are good things. But Paul says with tears, there's a danger in being someone or following someone who can't see past their earthly appetites. Their mind is set, he says, on earthly things, 
Um, Amber Scher is an artist in Raleigh. You can Google her later. Don't Google her now. Uh, she found on Yelp, she found the best negative one-star reviews of our country's national parks. And then she put quotes onto what would otherwise be these awesome, beautiful travel posters suitable for framing. And she calls this her subpar parks series. Um, there are a bunch. Here are some of my favorites. Um, Grand Tetons. All I saw was a lake, mountains, and some trees. Yosemite. Trees block view, and there are too many gray rocks. And uh, this one, Sequoia. There are bugs, and they will bite you on your face. Um, I think the one for uh, Grand Canyon says, a hole, a really, really big hole, right? They are missing the grandeur because they can't see past lake, tree, bugs. They can't see past it, right? Their eyes aren't on the right thing. They're not seeing things rightly, and they would make terrible tour guides in a national park. You would not want to follow them because they're so fixated on the things in front of them that they would miss all the good stuff. That's true with Paul, too. He says there's two types of guides. There's, there's two types of people you can follow and you can get your example from, and one type can't see past their own stomach, and so they're going to miss all the good stuff. Their destiny is destruction. He says, so instead, follow the ones who follow Christ. So if you want to keep your identity grounded in your true citizenship, choose the right tour guide. That was the first point, right? The second point is this. Uh, remember where you're going. And, and you would think that if we're talking about your citizenship, it would be about remembering where you're from, remembering where you were born, right? But Paul says, no, don't look back. He says, I want you to look forward. Remember where you're going. Verse 20 says this, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. You represent a kingdom that you haven't seen yet. And I know that seems absolutely foreign to us, but it wasn't foreign to the Philippians because that's exactly what they were doing. They were Roman citizens, but they didn't live in Rome. Most of them had never been to Rome. They didn't plan to go to Rome. When they died, they weren't going to be buried in Rome. But they understood that they had the responsibility of representing the interests and the authority of Rome in the place where they'd been called. There's a guy named Dennis Johnson who says it this way. He says, The city that defines your identity is neither the one in which you were born nor the one in which you were raised. It is the city towards which you are moving. The city that defines you is not Charlotte or New York or Hyderabad or wherever you're from, wherever you were born. You're not defined by where you've come from, but by where you're going. There's a heavenly city, and that is what most clearly defines you. That is where your true citizenship is, even though you, don't, you haven't been there yet. But you can live that out, that you can live that reality out in two different ways. So the one level is saying, peace out world, I was, I was made for somewhere else, and so when I die, I'll be with Jesus, and so I'm not afraid, and that is awesome. That will make you bold, right? That will make you fearless. That, it is good for you to be so heavenly minded that the things on earth won't rattle you when, when life throws you a curve, right? That's excellent. It's good. But if you stop there, then you're missing what really is your call as a citizen of another kingdom. Because a Roman citizen had the privilege of representing a far-off kingdom in the place where they found themselves. 
In other words, you're not just called to escape from this world to that one. You're called to bring that one into this one. That's your call as a Christian. You asked for this. We just prayed. Of, Dave led us in prayer, and we prayed the Lord's Prayer, and we said, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're saying. That's what we're asking, and the Lord uses us as part of the answer to that prayer. Now, you think about how that affects our attitudes and our calling right now in this whole coronavirus uh, situation that we're in. Your citizenship is in heaven. That doesn't mean that you're biding your time here until you get to there. You represent heaven here. You represent the interests of God's kingdom here today, in this moment. This verse, in other words, is not escapism. It is engagement. That's what you're called to do. This world, if I could say it this way, this world needs us to be bilingual right now. We need to be able to speak into the setting that we're in, but we need to speak the realities of heaven into that setting. The language of heaven, what is it? It's, it's love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. When we speak those things, guys, we are speaking our native tongue. It doesn't mean that it's the one that's most comfortable for us. One day it will be. But it's the language of your passport country. So what does our native tongue look like in the situation that we find ourselves in right now? If we are to speak the fruit of the Spirit into this moment in our city and in our world, well, there's a lot of things. I'll, main, I'll name a few. I think being bilingual, speaking our mother tongue would sound like this. It would sound like considering others' needs greater than our own. Finding innovative ways to love one another. Don't focus on self-preservation. Stop hoarding toilet paper. Don't allow yourself to huddle into fear mode, protective mode, doomsday mode, grab what you can in the grocery store mode. Pray for each other. Show your workmates and, and your neighbors that when you trust the Lord's sovereignty, it makes a difference. The language of heaven is what our world needs right now. And I hope that we've communicated this clearly in the emails that we sent this week. Um, but folks, we, we did not close this church to protect ourselves. We did it to love our neighbor and to love our city and to love our world. We're called to care for the city and look out for the vulnerable. And, and here's one way we can do that. We're called to honor and respect those in authority over us. And here's one way we can do that. We're called to pay attention to the needs of our culture. And here's one way we can do that. Scott Saul said it this way this week. I love this, uh, this quote. He says, In a time like now, Christian neighboring looks less like fearful self-preservation and more like servanthood toward the elderly, those with HIV, autoimmune disease, and no health care, fatigued and under-resourced health workers, etc. Wash hands for sure, then wash feet. That's the language of the kingdom. That's what it means to bring the kingdom realities of heaven to bear upon this situation and to say, we're called to love and serve and speak our mother tongue here. What do you know about where we're going to be headed one day? Think about what, there's a lot we don't know about heaven, but there are some things that we do know, right? There will be no more tears. So how do we live that out now? Well, we come alongside those who are mourning to bring hope. 
We know that there will be no more hunger. So wouldn't it be great if you did a grocery run for some people because we want to make sure that people have what they need, that people are, are fed. We know that in heaven, the kingdom reality is there will be no more sin. And so we point people to a savior who paid it all and who is the answer to all of our fears and all of our uh, idolatries and all of our addictions. And in this moment especially, we're reminded that there's a day when there will be no more sickness. And so we do what we can to promote health. That's a kingdom reality. Those are kingdom concerns that we're called to live out until the day that we can actually say perfectly, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, thy will was done on earth as it is in heaven. But I want to end with this. Um, in, In the end, Paul's kingdom mindset isn't about a place. It's about a person. He reminds us that Jesus will transform our lowly bodies so that it will be like his glorious body. Um, This body that is subject to cuts and bruises and viruses is passing away. That's always been the case. And a new imperishable body awaits us. The the down payment of that was Jesus' resurrection His body was raised imperishable, and it says that we're united to him so that one day we will experience that same resurrection, that same body imperishable. And this is what Paul's looking towards in this passage. And so ultimately, what Paul's looking forward to isn't a place, it's a person. If you're looking forward to heaven, but you're not looking forward to seeing Jesus, you are missing the point, right? We're looking for a person. We eagerly await, not a mansion on a hill, we eagerly await a savior from there, It says here, a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. A Savior and a Lord, right? A Lord who is fully in control of every moment and a Savior who knows that we're not really good at our native tongue yet. We're not really good at this foreign language. We're incapable of representing the kingdom of heaven well because we're broken. This body is perishing, but without help from Jesus, my soul would also perish. That's why he came. And by faith, you are so united to that that His righteousness becomes your righteousness, that his acceptance before the throne becomes your acceptance before the throne, and that one day his experience of a resurrected body will become your experience of a resurrected body. If you're in Christ, that's your future. You will in all ways be brought to completion in Christ. Let me end with the story. It's the early 1900s, and there's a missionary couple. They spent their life in Africa. And this is before the the years of regular furloughs. So they went over. They lived there for 30 years. And now after a a lifetime there where they actually buried two of their children in Africa, they're now coming home, a lifetime of service. And as they're boarding this ship, they're taking a ship back to America. As they're boarding the ship, uh, there are crowds and bands and dignitaries and cheers, but it's not for them. Because it turns out that President Teddy Roosevelt was on an African safari and had just been on a two-week trip hunting game, and uh, everybody had shown up to see him off and back to America. And all the Africans were there to see Teddy off, but nobody was there to send off the missionaries. And and the man said to his wife, you know, I don't get it. Everybody knows when the president is here, but uh, we've been here most of our lives. We have been, uh, we have given our lives for this, and when we get ready to go home, Nobody's here. The whole trip across the Atlantic, the husband is kind of stewing over those things, and uh, he feels the bitterness creeping in, and when they pull into New York Harbor, uh, there's a band playing, and there's songs, and there's cheers, and there's dignitaries, but it's not for them. It's Teddy's back. 
They're playing Teddy's favorite songs, and the high, high officials of the city are shaking his hand. And this missionary couple slips off the boat entirely unnoticed. There is nobody there to greet them. And this man is devastated at this point. He says, you know, he comes home and there's all this fanfare. We come home and there's nothing. And his wife wisely encouraged him to go pray about it. And so he did. And that night in this flat on the east side that was going to become their home for the foreseeable future, he went into his room to pray, and he prayed for a long time at his bedside. He's wrestling with God, and when he comes out, he's, he's clearly emotionally in a different place, and he tells his wife this. He says, I, I told God I didn't think it was fair. Teddy Roosevelt comes home from a vacation, and the world cheers. We come home from a life's work, and there's nothing. But God put his hand on my shoulder, and he whispered in my ear, but you're not home yet. Guys, we're not home yet. And until we get there, we need to live out the realities of that home here. That's what we, by God's grace, will do this week. Let's pray. Father, keep our eyes on where we're going, not on where we've been, because it's where we're going that defines us so much better. But Lord, if we do look back, would you cause us to look back on the completed work of Christ on our behalf? to look back on our mess that was sealed and justified and is being sanctified through the finished work of Christ. And with that, get our eyes focused forward, not just on our home, but on you who will greet us there. We eagerly await our Savior. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us expectant hearts even in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen.